Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzoo Vine for May 5th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about tonight's show. Um... For the second time, but it's been many, many years, we're going to have Mayor of Columbus, Georgia, Teresa Tomlinson, as our guest. But what makes this so exciting is um, this is right after this past week where she formally took her candidacy from an exploratory committee to fully announcing for U.S. Senate from the, for the state of Georgia, and so um, – we're going to be excited to talk to her about that campaign and her work as mayor of Columbus and different things like that. Uh, before that, though, and after that, we're going to have some uh, issues to discuss. And the first issue is really the biggest issue year in and year out in any any campaign cycle or, or you know, how do you think the direction of the country's doing, and that's the economy. And the economy is good. I mean, there's just no two ways to say it. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders said the economy's good, uh, you know, when someone asked about him. Now, who gets credit for that's another discussion. Even, I guess, more importantly than just the economy being good, unemployment's down. It's the lowest it's been in almost 50 years uh, since sometime in 1969. Um, so that's really a good thing for the American people. I mean, I, just because we may not agree with the current administration on a lot of things, I mean, I know at least me. I want people to have jobs and people to be secure in their income. Because what happens at the uh, in your house is always more important than what happens in the White House or the House of Representatives to your life. Um, but then that's going to have some impact on the election, and the question is, is how much? Um, Tim, you always bring back to the economy and talk about how important that is and what a determining factor that is. Um, what's your thoughts on how the economy is doing and how that relates to the political environment? Yeah, the economy is humming right along at the moment, although there's some cracks in it. You can't you can't argue with the fact that there's been a lot of jobs added, at 3.6% unemployment, and uh, since – Sometime in 2016, the unemployment rate's been below 5%, which leaves us at full employment. Uh, if this were any other president, I think the 2020 election would be over. Um, Trump even has a 56% approval on his handling of the economy. Uh, but the problem is, he, in the same poll, he has a 43% overall approval. Uh, he's never been able to get that second number up. He he, he seems to have never really, really tried. Uh, if, you know, t- 
to me, if he would just be quiet about other things right now <laughs> and just talk about the economy, it, it would help him immensely. Uh, but, but you know, he, he, he just won't do that. Uh, um, and, and as a result, that style of his is hard in opposition. The economy, uh, actually, the economy is the only thing from from calling the 2020 election over in the other uh, direction, isn't it? If he didn't have the economy, what would he have? He, he certainly doesn't have the love of the majority of the voters. So I think that's 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 where we're at right now. This unusual president, uh, none of the rules apply, I don't suppose. Yes, Catherine. Now, do you think you know Tim mentioned the approval of the economy and then the approval overall of his presidency? Do you think that there's a decent number of voters, not just Democrats, but maybe more swing voters, that say, you know, when uh, the last or two presidents ago, George W. Bush left under a bad economy, the economy was pretty stagnant for a while um, because it was such a deep recession, and then finally it started going good under President Obama. So this is kind of a continuation of that economic trend, and so therefore, you know, Donald Trump was already on the surfboard when the wave was moving. I, I think there's some people who feel that way. I think there's also some people who feel like the government, um, all they really need to do is get out of the way for the economy and jobs to improve, that there's not really anything that they can do uh you know, really tangibly to improve the economy that it, you know, it has to do with um, a feeling of security for companies so that they can hire people. And um, I mean, I'm not saying I agree with that, but there are people that feel that that's not really uh, the role of the, that the government really doesn't have that much impact on it. I think what, I think what he's trying to do now and I guess we'll probably get into this, but it's part of the conversation, is this new infrastructure deal that he's trying to strike up with uh, the Democrats. And I think that is definitely a a grab for him to, you know, improve his overall numbers and keep his economy numbers up. But now there's, like, waffling about that, so I'm not sure – how well that's going to go over and if people are going to recognize that jobs that you know fixing the highways and building bridges or rebuilding bridges is i'm not sure that's going to be ultimately tied to the president because most of that stuff is done at the state level even though the funding is coming from the fed some a lot of it is coming from the fed yes now tim let's kind of get in the political side of it um he's uh his approval rating Overall, it's not nearly as good. I mean, we, of course, have gone over a lot of those factors. Um, but how much of a boost do you think the economy is getting? Like, if the economy was not just completely in the tank, but, you know, worse, maybe, say, 2010, 2000, even 12 levels, um, where would his approval rating be, you think? Well, if it was at 2010 levels, it, it, his approval rating would be seven, eight points lower. Even at 2012 levels, his approval would probably be two to three points lower. 
uh, there, there, there's a couple of things, too, that are with the economy that just ain't helping his approval ratings to shoot through the roof. Um, by a two-to-one margin, a Washington Post poll recently found that Americans believe this great economy largely favors the rich. Even yep. one-third of Republicans believe that. So so what we have here is, is, is that disconnect, that wealth inequality thing that a lot of Democratic candidates, I believe, are going to be uh, talking about. There's another thing that's happened as a result of this economy. If people perceive the economy is really good, they're not going to rate it as highly on their list of issues that are important to them. That's uh, a good point. Right now, only 13%, according to Gallup, of the voters say that the economy is the most important issue because we've been in a recovery since 2010. The, the, you know, every, everything just been shooting straight up. You can see graphs of it just going straight up since 2010. Uh, Poor leadership, of all things, is the leading issue at 23%. Gee, why do you suppose that is? Uh, followed, closely, followed closely by immigration. And get this, more people think that Democrats, uh, albeit barely, than Republicans can fix the important problems of this country. So Trump really isn't according to all these numbers, benefiting like, you know, a normal president would. There's one more thing, too. A huge share of the voters simply find Donald Trump to be totally repugnant, and, and nothing's going to change their mind. Uh, that in itself makes the chances of what should normally be a big win for a president Next year with this economy, very very unlikely. Wouldn't y'all agree with that? Yeah, Catherine. One thing from Tim's numbers that he said, it sounds like that you know there's a confidence problem for Donald Trump, and if people don't believe he's competent, they have a trouble giving him credit. Um, is there anything he can do, and what would that be to kind of? Um, improve people's opinion of his competence when it comes to just, you know, presidenting. <laughs> I, I don't know what he could do. I mean, he's so far down the path now that, I mean, you know, he, he tried to appoint Moore and Kane to the Fed Reserve Bank and, and Federal <laughs> Reserve Board, and, and they backed out. So I suppose he could, you know, appoint someone who's qualified and competent for those two positions. But I'm not, you know, that's sort of inside baseball stuff. People don't really know what that means. But, I mean, I think the only thing he could do, <laughs> as Tim alluded to, is stay off the Twitter. Um, stop talking about people in such a negative and an awful way. But he just can't. He can't control himself. He he just can't. So I just don't I don't I mean I'm sure there's other things he could do. You know, this infrastructure deal might help, but it's gonna be 
it's going to be fracturing. You know, it's going to be, he's going to say one thing one day and then the next day he's going to say something else. And pretty soon Nancy Pelosi is just going to be like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not going to be part of this, you know, party game. And, uh, so I, I, I don't see a lot that he could do. I mean, I think he's already dug that hole. He's pretty deep in it. Don't you, Tim? Yeah, and not only. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Or, or yeah, go or ahead, David. David. Whatever. Well, I was going to say is, and not only does he, you know, not he says such negative things about a lot of folks, then he'll go and say positive things about Kim Jong Un the week that he uh, launches and continues <laughs> to test missiles off the coast of North Korea. I mean, he's so erratic. Where, you know, he just he's vilified any American that he considered his political enemy. But then folks from overseas that have that, you know, we don't care what the people think attitude, he talks positively of. Um, Well, Tim, how do you think this impacts how the Democrats approach the primary selection process? I mean, are there voters that might say, well, you know, I would vote for candidate X because he or she might be um, someone that I I think, you know – you know, maybe take more chances, more inspirational, uh, maybe further in, in the direction of the policies I'd like to see. But because of the economy being so strong at this point, maybe we better play it safe and elect the candidate uh, or nominate a candidate that I like less. Do you think that could uh, fit into the calculus? Well, as far as far as as the Democratic candidates, I uh, you you know the the old statement that Republicans fall in line and Democrats fall in love. I, I don't think that's going to be so much true next year. Democrats are not in love right now. Democrats are furious at the man who holds the office, and they are just mad. And mad voters vote, and they are going to vote for the person first and foremost that I believe that they believe has the best chance to defeat Donald Trump. Uh, I don't believe they're going to stray far off the farm to do that. I, I, I don't think any of the candidates running at zero or one percent or something like that right now are going to get there. I, I think there's uh, seven or eight leading candidates uh, out there, and I and I think one of them's going to win the nomination. And and another thing, the the Democrats really are, as I, I mentioned earlier, they're going to be able to talk about wealth inequality because the average person out there, and these are people in areas that Donald Trump ran strongly, and especially up in the Rust Belt and the Northeast. Uh, These people still don't feel like they are experiencing such a great economy. Uh, You you know, a a, a loaf of bread costs six times what it cost on average 40 years ago. And the average 35-year-old worker in this country, when adjusted for inflation, is making exactly what they made 40 years ago. Uh, that's the kind of thing that's, that's going to strike home uh, with, with voters that are thinking of, about the economy. And, and that, that 
was such a telling thing uh, that that poll I cited that said that by two to one margin, people think that this economy favors favors the rich, uh, and there ain't enough of them to elect anybody. So, uh, yeah, there there's chinks in Trump's economic armor, and the chief one, of course, being being Trump himself and and his personality. People really do, guys want to see a president that acts presidential. They really do miss that. And if only he would do that. You know, you asked me and Catherine what could Trump do. If he would just act, act, act like a normal human being and quit tweeting like a why, – why do he have to weigh in on the Kentucky Derby at Scream yeah. it was stolen? <laughs> oh, why do he have to even do that part? I mean, why does he have to do stuff like that? Oh, you know. Yeah, he, he turned the Kentucky Derby into a partisan affair, and I'm sure before his tweet, there was nothing partisan at all about that. Um, you know, but maybe he just wants to get the idea in the Amer- Americans' minds that anytime you take a closer look at something, it's cheating and stealing, not just greater analysis, because obviously greater analysis hurts him in a lot of yeah. ways. Well, Catherine. Tim mentioned, um, you know, income inequality and, and, and the divide between rich and poor, and that kind of would seem to favor Bernie Sanders. But with this good economy, do you think some Democratic voters say, you know, we can't really take a chance on a candidate like Bernie Sanders? We have to play it a little more safer, a little more traditional, and that actually could, you know, benefit a host of different candidates besides Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I'm not. Uh, I saw Bernie Sanders this morning on um, this week, and uh, I just. I mean, I like some of the things that he talks about, but I don't think he's, and I, I don't think he's different enough. I mean, I'm not suggesting that he's anything like Trump, but I think that people are looking for something very different. Um, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean age, doesn't necessarily mean race or, or uh, gender. It's just something different. Whether, and I think um, we have a lot of different candidates. And I, and I just, I, I just sort, sort of feel like um, he, I, I think there's some point of, you know, that it's a little risky because, you know, he's got this socialist tag on him, which is pretty ridiculous. But um, but I, I just sort of feel like people are looking for something different, and I don't think he's different enough. That's, that's sort of how I feel. Yes. Well, now I'm I want to boy. change gears, and, and I want to move into our guest and welcoming um, – for the second time to the kudzu vine, but for the first time as the elected mayor of Columbus, Georgia, Mayor Teresa Tomlinson. Welcome, Mayor Tomlinson. Hey, David. How you doing? Good to talk with you. Um, well, yeah. I, you know, we got a we got a lot of things to talk about given the news of the week, but but I guess it's been you know close to I guess eight years since you've been on, and so just for our listeners. Kind of give them a brief bio, and if you want to then transition to that in to your terms as uh, mayor, feel free to do that. 
Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Atlanta. Of course, my parents, my mom is from uh, central uh, South Georgia, uh, sort of the Colquitt County, Moultrie, Thomasville area. So I've got family all over uh, the state. Grew up in Atlanta and uh, lived about half, half my life there. Practiced law, uh, mostly in the federal courts across the country, um, specializing in litigation. I took on uh, some pretty big, big folks, large chemical conglomerate took on uh, who and actually they were uh, had a product that was uh, poisoning farmland at the time took on large banks uh, for truth and lending and also um, you know consumer fraud type issues mortgage fraud type issues and uh, moved to Columbus oh gosh now I guess about 20 years ago and uh, was practicing law uh, saw that the mayor was not going to run again. I've always been very involved in government, very interested in government, was trying to actually get other people to run, and uh, thought I'd cut out the middleman, run myself, and uh, kind of quote-unquote show how it was done, if you will, and, and had a great time running. That was in uh, 2010, uh, was sworn in in 2011, and had the great privilege of serving two terms. Uh, we're term-limited out in, in Columbus. They only allow for two terms. Uh, had a great run here. I'm a proud progressive, uh, so I had the opportunity to implement some very progressive policies, but I like to say that even though I'm a proud progressive, I speak fluent Republican, so you'd be surprised how sometimes we can get our Republican friends and more conservative friends to buy into progressive policies if we just explain them a little bit differently. So, uh, we had a good run here. We lowered crime 42%, actually um, supplied uh, city and county government at the lowest cost per person of any major city in the state of Georgia. Uh, but in doing that, still had a, a very full and rich quality of life that we uh, offered our folks here and improved our quality of life um, dramatically, uh, reduced a lot of blight, uh, reduced our unemployment, uh, like I said, we, we had a, eight great years, and so I uh, was thinking of going about this, the practice of law, and then about 14 months ago, I uh, started looking at this uh, senatorial race against David Perdue in 2020, thought he was quite vulnerable, and uh, thought that my particular experience profile, uh, the fact that I'm uh, from the southwest Georgia area, uh, frankly, I think we can put together a political package that he can't beat, so that's why I'm in it. Yes, well, let's uh, talk about that. Is um, when you initially announced a few weeks ago about the exploratory committee, you actually referenced um, Stacey Abrams and saying, you know, simple waiting for her to run. Um, tell us about the thinking behind the decision to go ahead and say, hey, I want to run for, I, I want to look at this U.S. Senate seat, and I'm ready to run and represent the Democratic Party. Uh, kind of what caused you to kind of uh, get out there first, if you will. Yeah, well, like I said, we've been looking at it for about 14 months, and uh, I had been a surrogate for Stacey Abrams in her um, effort and uh, helped her campaign, uh, you know, every every time I could, and and we contributed, both my husband and I contributed to the Abrams campaign, so we're very solid supporters. I had never heard her voice and interest in, in the Senate campaign, and so uh, – we frankly thought she was going to be governor, and then, you know, I would run for Senate, uh, and then Senator Schumer had pitched the idea of her considering it, as you well know, and as the nation saw, um, her progressive profile just exploded onto the national stage, and my thinking was, look, you know, Stacey Abrams and I have been in the 
trenches of, of progressive democratic politics in Georgia for a very long time. And, and 2020 is going to be the year that we're going to take back a statewide seat, and we need to coordinate or at least all be rowing in the same direction on this. We don't need two, in, in my opinion, formidable statewide uh, candidates running against each other in a primary, not because I'm afraid of competition, uh, not because I think we shouldn't have a robust uh, discussion about the ideas, but because when it's so critical to flip this very important seat, when we finally have uh, the Republicans in the state on the, in, on the ropes, if you will, uh, I just wanted us to think very carefully about the expenditure of millions of dollars in a primary, um, about the fact that we had many of the same supporters, frankly, and what that would do to the Democratic Party. So again, I, I you know, the first time I ran, as you well know, I, it was an open seat with, with four very competitive candidates. We actually ended up having 44 debates in what turned out to be a little over uh, well, about a 10-month race. It was it was a pretty serious race for mayor um, in Columbus. Our politics is a little like the NFL. Uh, you know, Chicago's got nothing on us. Uh, we 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 do we do real real deal politics down here, uh, and so it was it was quite intensive. So I I don't shy away from competition. It was more knowing that we we have a real shot at this seat and wanting to be smart about it. And so when uh, Stacy announced that she wasn't going to run. Um, you know, I, we were ready to go. Frankly, we had had the organization set and ready to go. I, I knew she was very thoughtfully considering it, but I just did not believe that she ultimately uh, would take this particular opportunity with the other opportunities she had before her. So we have been, frankly, planning on that what we thought was an inevitability, her choosing um, other paths to serve the state and nation. And uh, we were we were in the blocks and ready to go the second she said she was out. Yes, and it sounds like you had a combination of gut instinct and analysis, and it's paid off for you. So that's kind of a good introduction to a lot of the <laughs> folks outside of Columbus to you as a candidate and a leader. Well, um, I don't want to take up all the questions, so I'm going to pass it to sure. Catherine Smith and Tim Chiflett, and I may have more in the end. Catherine? Okay. Sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> um, thanks so much for being on with us tonight. It was we were we're all look, we were all looking forward to it. So it's Great. Uh, quite Thank a you. pleasure to have you on. Um, I'm going to talk about something that's kind of tough. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about sure. something that's kind of tough. Um, Across the nation, we have um, state legislatures attacking uh, abortion rights. Um, mm-hmm. Like, unbelievable. You know, we we have we had we have the six-week ban here in Georgia. In Alabama, they have a two-week ban. And what this is really doing, in, in my mind, is highlighting um, the terrible uh, lack of access to. Healthcare, not just for women, not just for abortion, not just for for um, contraception and um, STI t- testing, but for every every kind of access to healthcare in Georgia. We've, you know, I don't know how many rural hospitals have closed, and and across the country, it's it's like that. I mean, a little better mm-hmm. on the coast, but um, so as a senator, how do you um, how do you see yourself? Uh, What's your vision for how we yeah. solve these problems? Not not just I mean not just about abortion, but 
about sure. just general access to health care, but also uh, Absolutely. Well, let me, um, and since you couched it in the most important um, conversation that we're having today, because it is under assault, I will address abortion, and I appreciate your comment, your caveat that this may be a difficult subject. The fact of the matter, you know, unfortunately, it's not a difficult subject for me because the no, Republicans it have teed it up to, to, um, to, to this critical circumstance that now they're literally talking about the government intervening in basic women's reproductive rights. And, and you know, it's interesting because a lot of times Democrats, um, Republicans bring this highly personal, you know, uh, highly, uh, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's, a, it's a subject matter that is steeped in their re- religiosity, their theology, whatever that may be. It's steeped in biology and, and, and personal things that we don't, normally talk about but but the fact of the matter is that when when the republicans pose uh government interference in some of the most private aspects of our lives um then then we have to we have to go toe-to-toe with them on exactly what this is about and so i i think you have brought up a very good point of first of all um, this is affecting all kinds of, of health issues related specifically to women, uh, con- contraceptive health and access. Um, you know, we've, we've dealt before with um, sex education issues and the abstinence issues that the conservatives uh, like to push. And, and often these issues of abortion, women's reproductive health and, and um, sex education are frankly couched in Republican get-out-the-vote efforts, which I find to be particularly Cynical, and so so I want to make this clear, and then, then answer your your position or your uh, the question you pose of what can a U.S. senator do about this? Um, I have been ardently pro-choice my entire adult life since I was old enough to understand what in the world anybody was talking about, and the reason why is because if you understand anything about our form of government, there is no way in the world. That, uh, that a legislature is the best judge of something that is so highly individualized as somebody's reproductive health, so highly personal, so highly biologically encompassed within the walls of our flesh, right? And, and so that is, there's nothing about uh, government legislative power uh, that should be dictating those types of decisions. We, we wouldn't allow it related to uh, heart surgery or anything else that you could you could come up with, uh, our Republican friends would be losing their minds. And so I think to get to your question, of look at what the states have done with this. When left to their own devices, uh, we are having women's health put at issue um, in, a, in a very significant way. Uh, we are having them, uh, this war on Planned Parenthood, we're having women by economic status being denied basic health care by the war on the ACA, you know, the failure to expand uh, Medicaid, all of the limit, limitations, the Hyde Act and so forth. I, I think we have to repeal the Hyde Act. I think we have to, um, I think we have to uh, pass federal legislation frankly, that codifies um, something even better than Roe versus Wade uh, about the fact that there is just a baseline level of, of privacy and individual health care decisions um, that state governments cannot interfere with. And I'm very proud of that position. I'm very strong in it and will not flinch. I will not be bullied on this subject. It is so critically important. And I would urge all 
Democrats um, to stop being so gracious when, when this issue comes up. We tend to be too polite. Uh, we tend to uh, not want to get down into the subject because it's, it's so personal. Well, you know, if they're coming after you on a personal basis, you're going to have to have the conversation and make people realize what exactly they're talking about. And so I hope that's made it clear, but that's, that's what a senator of good conscience can do about the role of government in our lives that's literally affecting health care, health care delivery, and uh, resource distribution to our, our people. Thank you very much. And this also helps with stigma when, you talk, when we talk about it. Yes, when you talk about it, it, and and like I said, I think we've given them a pass for too long, and, you know, it comes up, and we really, particularly women, we don't want to talk about what exactly they're talking about there, and and I think we have to stop, you know, one quick thing, and then I know Tim wants to jump in, but but, you know, uh, the ERA, they were talking at the beginning of this legislation, legislative session, state legislative session in 2019, about the possibility of Georgia ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment. And it actually had bipartisan support, if you remember. And then all of a sudden, uh, right-to-life entities started uh, calling these, these Republicans who had signed on uh, to the bill to uh, ratify the ERA and telling them they, they had to withdraw their support. And when asked why, the, these Republicans articulated, well, once a woman becomes pregnant, she, she's a vessel of the state because she's carrying right. a compelling state interest. What? What, what? what did you just say? That once a woman becomes pregnant, she relegates her individual rights so she can't have, quote, equal rights because she becomes a vessel of the state because the state has a, quote, compelling state interest in her womb. We, we need to stop and think about that for a minute. And that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about federal legislation. Um, and, and, you know, interestingly, this is not a radically liberal idea I'm espousing here. If you go back to, to what liberal, quote, conservative is supposed to mean and not the crazy labels we like to put on things today. But there is no way that a quote-unquote conservative government is supposed to be involved in regulating a woman's womb or relegating her to be a state vessel because of her status of being pregnant or not pregnant. It's, it's just bizarre. Well, thank you very much, and I'm going to pass it to Tim. Good evening, Mayor. Thank you for being on with us tonight. Um, yes. What do you feel was your chief accomplishment in your eight years as mayor? Yeah. Well, I tell you, I, the one I love the most and I'm the proudest of is the most boring one, and that is we completely reformed our budget. We I came in at the time that the um, that the deficit, excuse me, the um, the recession was you know in its lowest ebb. And the city of Columbus, although it had always been a very, you know, prudent, responsible city, I should say, um, we had bet on the, the prior council and the prior mayor had bet on the fact that the recession would turn around much more quickly than it did. So our reserve was gone by and large. And, uh, and, and we had not been living as if our reserve was gone. And so I had to completely led the effort to report, reform our pension, save 55 million dollars 
but didn't do it at the cost of our hardworking employees. They actually got a better product. And so we were able to just completely reform how that was structured. Um, they maintained their defined benefit plan. We did the same thing with our health insurance. We, we took it from $27 million a year to more like $23, $24 million a year, so saved three, four million dollars a year for, you know, the rest of my term, my two terms, which was about six years. Um, I tell you that to say that we, we got the, we got a health and wellness center um, for our employees, which was actually better, more access to health care, less expensive to them uh, and less expensive to us. Uh, you know, someday I can sit down and tell you all the details of how that seemingly miraculous stuff happened, but it came from completely rethinking the organizational structure that we had at hand, uh, completely rethinking, quote, how things had always been done. And that's why I'm very excited about serving in the Senate, because if there's any place that we need to begin thinking about how to change, quote, the way things have always been done, it's the organizational structure of the Senate, because right now it's locked in this incredible dysfunction. Um, they're addicted to the fight. Uh, it's all about how to stoke the base. And uh, I think bringing somebody with a mindset who has taken on very thorny, very tangled issues that have all sorts of very deep and passionate effects on people and completely disassembling them and putting them back together in a, in a very productive way, you know, that's me. And, and I frankly just think the U.S. Senate's in desperate need of that. And so, you know, I could talk to you about the fact that we created an alternative transportation system in Columbus. Um, so now that all of our, a lot of our communities are completely connected or will soon be connected by walking and biking trails. So you don't have to own a car if you live in certain parts of Columbus and in town communities. Um, you know, things that, that that a lot of mayors like to talk about because you can cut ribbons and find pictures of them doing that, that we created our tourism economy by, you know, uh, blowing up our dams and opening the Chattahoochee River back up to its natural state. Those are wonderful things and environmental things that we did. But the thing I'm proudest of and the thing that will have the longest impact on Columbus was reforming that budget because it ensures the economic stability of, of this community for the indefinite future. And that was why Columbus was voted one of the 25 best-run cities in America in 2017, which, of course, I'm very, very proud of. But it was because of, of things like that, the steady hand at the wheel during tough times and completely reforming things that most politicians won't touch with a 10-foot pole because it's the third rail of politics. Mm -hmm. Now let's segue into a question that would, would take this thing statewide. Obviously, at the moment, a lot of voters outside of Muskogee County uh, do not yet know who you are. Um, if you walk into a room of such voters to talk to them, and they ask you, what are you going to do for us in the U.S. Senate? Uh, what do you want those voters to take away from that meeting with you? Yes, okay. First, I want to just challenge your premise. Um, you know, I think a lot of people do presume that I am not well-known otherwise, um, Yes, I'm the mayor of Columbus, Georgia. Yes, I've been here for 20 years. But as I said earlier, I was born and raised in, in Atlanta and actually maintained a law office there throughout the entirety of the time that I practice law and currently have a law office at 191 
Peachtree. So and my family's still up there. And, and as mayor, you work with other hub city mayors. So I've already been on the quote circuit uh, for the last eight years, speaking to people, whether it's the Chamber of Commerce, Rotary Clubs, or whatever, all throughout the state about issues that are very important to, to Georgians. So I just want to challenge your, your premise there. But nevertheless, I don't care who you are. And even when Stacey Abrams began running two years ago, uh, she was a, the minority leader of the state house. I think if you had done a, uh, you know, a poll, she probably would have had what about anybody would have, you know, somewhere between a 15 and 25% name recognition rate, right? So I think anyone, unless you're already holding statewide office, starts out with uh, being known in, in their region. And I'm very proud of the region I'm known in, and I'm very proud of the connections I have and the reputation I have throughout the state and having been on statewide shows like, you know, Political Rewind and others. It may be a little better than you, you think. But your point's well taken. There are going to be uh, folks out there, because I've not held statewide office, that don't know how Teresa Tomlinson thinks. And I, and I think the, the first thing I'm going to tell them, Tim, is you can guarantee you're going to get good government when you elect Teresa Tomlinson. And you think, well, that sounds like a whole lot of hooey. But let's just run down a little bit what, what you've gotten so far. Um, you know, with our current representation, we've had trade wars declared on our own farmers. We've had uh, long, painful and frankly, devastating delays in getting basic hurricane relief to our citizens because of some weird debate that we're having about whether or not Puerto Ricans are actually U.S. citizens and whether we're going to divert money that was already appropriated uh, to go to disaster relief in Puerto Rico to a wall or to some other thing. And, and our current leadership has allowed our, our people, our Georgians, to get caught up in that tangle of mess and that addiction to the fight and that dysfunction. Um, and, and, you know, we look at our, our, our deficits, right? When, when our current representation went up there, it was to, quote, reform the budget, which I know a little thing about reforming the budgets, as we've just talked about. Well, our, our budget uh, nationally is now at one budget deficit, $1 billion dollars. Uh, we just had, I should write it, one trillion dollars. Excuse me. We have the largest trade deficit we've ever had, and we have a 22 trillion dollar uh, national debt. So we're running in the wrong direction. So does it matter if you get good government? Yes. And I would suggest that first and foremost, when you're electing somebody to the federal government position, uh, you must have somebody who actually believes in it. They can't come from a party that has as a, a basic philosophy that we need to, quote, unquote, drown government in the bathtub, right? You've heard the famous Grover Norquist and, and conservative um, phraseology that we need to atrophy government. We need to smash government. We need to drown it in the bathtub. Those are things you, you hear often from the Republicans and the conservatives. You cannot run something that you do not believe in. You cannot run something that you don't understand and believe in how it works. I love governing, and I'm good at it. And those are the types of people we need to send to Washington, D.C., and I don't care which of the 159 counties you live in. It is going to inure to your benefit when you have somebody up in Washington, D.C., who knows how to resolve dysfunction, who knows how to run government, who understands its purpose, and will utilize it every day as a tool to better your life. That's the basic premise. And we can get into talking about all the different 
you know, health care and, and uh, you know, wealth disparities and things of that nature. Those are all individual issues. But as a general overarching theme, that's my pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to ask you a particular question about health care because it, it is something that, that you, you have mentioned in the past. And I think mm-hmm. it, it – uh, Especially with the talk about things like Medicare for all, uh, you know, it's kind of come to the forefront. But in your view, is expansion of Medicare to people younger than 65 uh, a, a realistic goal? Is it doable? Sure, I think it is, certainly. You know, let me first say that. Um, that you know the the quote unquote free market that everybody keeps talking about related to the healthcare industry is not at all acting and reacting as a free market. It's a market full of anomalies, of um, you know of, of profiteering. Uh, there's not uh, there's barriers to entry. Uh, there's not equal access to information and all the other things that what economists would tell you that this is is not behaving as a free and open market. And so we need to disabuse ourselves of that fallacy right now. And, and, and the reason why I say that is because there is a place for government here. And so when you talk about Medicare for all, which people are interested in, how's this going to affect my life? I appreciate that the market is or is not working, but, but how am I and my kids uh, going to get better health care? Well, one of the things I think we need to do um, is we talk about Medicare expansion is that we actually can take it to 55. There are plenty of studies that have already been done on all this. We know how much it costs. We know, you know, the various different ways we could pay for it. But one of the ways it would be paid for, frankly, is by resolving some of these huge inefficiencies in the market. It would help, it would help those uh, private providers and insurers that are in the market by removing those that are 55 and older uh, from the private industry, uh, perhaps giving them an option. There's a lot of debate about whether there should be an option or it should be mandatory. Um, but, you know, removing them from the market, of course, then makes it easier for the private participants to offer much more competitive um, health care prices, health coverage prices to everybody else. It also, frankly, helps Medicare because you're getting younger people into their system uh, and, and they're less expensive uh, to care for because, uh, generally speaking, they would have less ailments. So I think I think taking it, and this is a perfect example of being a proud progressive, but a, a, a pragmatist in how you implement it. I think you can say, I, I love to hear the debate about Medicare for all, but I would never do that in one big swoop because I think the shock to the market would be too great, and I think we may have some unintended reverberations uh, they can have serious economic impact. I'm not saying it couldn't be done, um, but you're going to have to you're going to have to move toward it first and foremost by taking Medicare to 55, seeing how the market reacts, um, making sure that you're getting the responses that you want because there may need to be uh, regulatory uh, further regulatory improvements, um, and, uh, and 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 then seeing whether or not you need to expand Medicare. But I'll tell you right now, Tim. We're paying for it, but we're paying for it right now. The inefficiencies in this market, you're paying for it with um, your, uh, you know, uh, emergency room uh, bills are paying with higher costs because they're trying to recoup, um, you know, things that, that can't be recovered by them otherwise. 
um, from the uninsured um, or those that are underinsured, uh, and you're paying for it in high premiums if you if you're fortunate enough to be able to be covered. So we might as well pay for it in an efficient system that actually gets us better health care coverage. That is an excellent answer, and I thank you very much for it. And then with that, I'm going to switch it right back to Dave. David? Yes, well, Mayor Thomas, we thank you for coming on the show. Before you leave, um, tell our listeners how they can get involved with your campaign, how, how they can learn more about your campaign, what are all those ways? Yeah, well, thank you so much. Uh, let me first express that this, this campaign is the real deal. If you didn't uh, catch any of the press releases and the coverage, uh, we raised $300,000 in the first 24 hours uh, that we kicked off this campaign. That is remarkable by any standards of any statewide campaign that was launched you know, for a new candidate. That just does not happen. So I want people to know that I love raising money because I'm not asking people to, quote, unquote, just write me a check. I'm asking them to invest in good government. People do that. Uh, and so that's why we were able to raise those kind of funds. And we are going to be able to raise the $22 million it's going to take to run this campaign. So they need to first and foremost understand that I'm a candidate with experience in politics, 30 years in democratic politics, um, and I understand how this runs and how this works. Uh, we have gotten excellent professionals on staff um, with uh, Donna Walker, who was actually uh, the finance director for the Abrams campaign. So all of her information is fresh um, and, and her you know, up-to-date strategies are fresh and we're excited to have her on board and Stephanie Berger of Berger Hirschberg who's actually out of New York but they help coordinate the national aspects of this race so uh, because this race will have national implications and we're working with Trippy Norton who ran the Doug Jones campaign successfully um, as a strategist Um, so with that I I just again want to stress that this is the real deal campaign um, you can go to TeresaTomlinson.com and, and check me out, the campaign out, uh, and we're uh, actually going to be launching this week a volunteer page. Uh, you can sign up for updates and, and all that good stuff and, and learn about how the campaign is, is moving along. Uh, but we have um, a solid strategy uh, to defeat David Perdue. Uh, we're going to capitalize on the gains made by both Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams. But one, one thing that we people didn't hear with all the, quote, good news from 2018 um, is that we actually lost seven counties that are historically Democratic counties in this state that are in central Georgia. And we're going to win those counties with my name on the ballot because those are counties I work with all the time. Uh, and we're going to be able to shave the margins of the rural Republican strategy that has been putting these Republicans in office all these years, despite the fact that we're turning out hundreds of thousands of Democratic votes in our urban centers. So that's what I'm excited about. That's the kind of theme and and strategic thinking um, that people will find when they help join this campaign. But we're going to be competing in all 159 counties. Matter of fact, I'm setting up a date to go to Fanning County, I'm in Peach County, Scrivens County. We're all over the place. So I thank you for this opportunity, and thank you for asking. Just ask people to keep an eye on TeresaTomlinson.com because you ain't seen nothing yet. Hmm. Yes. Well, Mayor Tomlinson, thank you for coming on the show, and we're going to continue 
to watch and discuss your campaign uh, until November 2020. Thank you. Well, anytime, and just let me know if you want me to jump on for some of these. I don't mind the questions, no matter how tough they are, so anytime. We may take you you up on that. Thank you, (laughs) Mayor. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Mayor. (laughs) Bye-bye. All right. That was Mayor Teresa Tomlinson, uh, candidate for Democratic nomination of U.S. Senate from Georgia, uh, two-term mayor, Columbus, Georgia, uh, one of the larger cities along the um, southwestern border of the state. Um, And so good to have her on the show and good to have her in the race because now we can actually have a name uh, to put against David Perdue, which we didn't have until just a few weeks ago. Um, Well, let's get back to what we were talking about, the polls that uh, have come out that, you know, kind of interesting with the Democratic race. Um, One that I I noticed that I sent to y'all was, did y'all see the poll where it took different Democratic candidates against Donald Trump? And Beto O'Rourke had the largest lead. He actually had a 10-point lead, and really he's been laying low, not a lot said about Beto O'Rourke's campaign. Uh, Catherine, what do you think that's coming from? I don't know. That kind of surprised me. I, I, it was, And it was a pretty big difference, wasn't he? He had 10 points, and the next one was Biden with six. Is that right? Right. That sounds right. Like I mean, it's the only one in double yeah. figures. And it was a CNN poll. Yeah, that it wasn't seemed... a, a strange poll in front we never see. Yeah, I, I, I don't really have an explanation for it, except maybe just what, what I was talking about earlier is the, you know, distinction that he's very different from from Donald Trump. He's young. He's um, eloquent and enthusiastic. So, but I was surprised, honestly. Yeah, and he's positive. That's another big thing. He's always seems to be yes. upbeat and positive instead of uh, negative, and then that's another contrast. Um, Tim, any ideas? You know, kind of that came out of nowhere because to me, better work had kind of been passed up by Pete Buttigieg and um, some other folks in the race. Well, he he. Though in the minds of Democratic voters nationwide who are thinking about electability, I mean, you know, that that's going to be a good talking point for Beto O'Rourke going forward. He can point to this poll and say, you know, I can win this thing. I can win this thing big, and the people of this country, as evidenced by this poll, think I can win this thing big. And maybe it'll start moving his numbers in a positive direction in these individual states because, frankly, as you mentioned, he has been eclipsed by some people. Uh, Looking at some of this recent polling, uh, well, uh, just at uh, the Real Clear Politics poll, the polls right now has him uh, like in sixth place with 4.6% of the vote. Uh, Buttigieg's ahead of him now. Harris is ahead of him. Warren's ahead of him. All of those people have passed him recently. I still think the thing to do for these candidates is to position themselves to get in at least third place. That being said, it's not a long way from 4.6% to 8% or the third place candidate, 
he is hitting all of these places and doing this on the ground retail politics in Iowa, you know, he 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 might be something of a surprise, uh, as a fellow named Bill Clinton was many moons ago. Um, so electability is an issue now that he can that he can run on. He's got proof, right? I, I guess maybe another poll needs to come out like this, but this is one of those in that news cycle and that fundraising cycle. You try to then raise money off of it, and yeah. then in the news cycle, you try to get your name back out there. I do notice when they posted that um, story on Political Wire, that thing had over 300 comments that day. It was like three times as many comments as other posts. So people were talking about it, at least, you know, real insiders that, you know, that site uh, seems to have. Well, let me ask you about another number from that poll. Uh, the only candidate to be losing to Donald Trump head-to-head in that poll, I believe, was Elizabeth Warren. And one thing I do find very strange about that is this is a candidate that probably has put out more detailed plans than any other candidate for the Democratic nomination. And she's put it out there, you know, told plans. In her town hall, I thought she was very firm in the way she laid all that out. Yet she's not able to lead Donald Trump head to head. Catherine, any ideas why Elizabeth Warren is struggling so? I think <clears throat> I think she's too wonky. She doesn't have enough um, enthusiasm, or when I when I've seen her, and I haven't seen her that often. <clears throat> Excuse me, but I I feel like she's sort of, you know, she talks about all these policies and all that is important. But you also have to grab the sort of – you need to have some kind of, you know, personality. And um, I, I just feel like she's sort of lacking in that sort of uh, charisma, I guess, is my, would, be, would be my guess. Yeah, and I agree with you. But, but Tim, uh, you know, we saw the video. We discussed the video of her opening the beer – you know, hey, I'm going to have this beer. Husband, you want to have a beer with me? And he, like, ran away. And that's obviously not her forte. But when she lays out these plans on how to pay for college education and, and how to, you know, pay for other things, she really is in her element. So I think Catherine's right that she may miss on that likability factor, but doesn't she have to run on who she is? Well, yeah, and she's getting the policy want mix stuff going. I also think she she's um, she's probably pulling some votes from Bernie Sanders. I think he would dearly love to see her out of the race. Uh, she seems to be holding down still third place. You know, you got Biden. First Biden and then Sanders, who seem to be well out in front of everyone else. But then you got Elizabeth Warren actually leading that next group of voters. And, and I think uh, what what we could see as, as a weakness is, is is also her strength. And 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 that and you're right. It, she's got to be who she is, and that's a policy wonk. Hey, would you guys like to hear a fun poll? This is from Monmouth, okay? And it's the okay. generic congressional ballot for next year. 
Democrats 46, Republicans 37. How does that one strike y'all? It sounds like the Democrats will be retaining the House of Representatives yes, um, regardless of what happens in the Senate. And, and see, th- th- I mean, that's, that's nationwide that's going on. Uh, the Democratic candidates that are slogging it out in these, in these states for the Democratic nomination have already got to be thinking, man, once we can transform this – into a national campaign is just all they're waiting on us. There's some excited people, as excited as they were last year, ready to vote. But how is that going to translate, David or, or Catherine, if either one of you can answer this, into uh, a cold night in Iowa next February? It, it, are, are there going to be excited people coming to those caucuses that are, are – or what? Catherine, you have the last word. David? Tonight. No, Catherine, you get the last word. I tonight. Hope he so. said either one. <laughs> I hope so, is my answer. We're going to have to make sure they are. Yes. Yes. Well, um, there are so many things we didn't even get to this week, but we have another show next week. We already have our guests lined up, author of Chesapeake Requiem. Um, Earl Swift is going to be our guest, and you're thinking, why in the world's a political show talking about uh, uh, the island of Tangier that has the blue crab fishers? But there is a political angle uh, to this book, which there always is in the world of Donald Trump, if our book about the USFL and Jeff Perlman didn't teach you that lesson. Um, but <laughs> until then, in the Cudsy Vine. Good night, Good night y'all. Hey, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created 